welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Justin Murray, Associate Professor of Law at New York Law School. We will discuss his article, Prejudice-Based Rights in Criminal Procedure, which will be published shortly in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. So welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks for having me, Brian. Ah, the pleasure's all mine. So first off, congratulations on your uh, imminent publication in the Pennsylvania Law Review. Uh, I now know that they've chosen at least two excellent articles, uh, Common Law Origins of the Infield Fly Roll, and your paper, which I really enjoyed reading. Yeah, I, I think that those are the only two that they've ever, uh, you know, gotten right in their, you know, century something long history. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to glad to help them out. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, that's that's really big of you, um, and I'm sure they appreciate it. <laughs> um, so, like I said, I really like this paper. Um, I think it's a really interesting way of looking at a troubling aspect of how courts cash out uh, procedural rights in a criminal justice context. And I think it's a really also like a provocative look at or provocative way of thinking about why the way we're doing it now is really doing a huge disservice to people who are being prosecuted for, for crimes. But as a way of situating listeners – in the kind of approach that you're taking. I wonder if we could start by having you just to say a little bit about what you mean by prejudice-based rights and how they differ from other kinds of rights that people might have in a criminal justice context. Yeah, so so I think that um, when a lot of people think about procedural rights, they think about uh, you know maybe the rules, uh, the uh, rights that you have under the law of evidence or the, you know, the, the rights that you have in connection with a jury trial or discovery rights, for, you know, uh, the right of a criminal defendant to receive evidence uh, from a prosecutor. And we oftentimes think about how if the, you know, if you aren't allowed to present your evidence as required by the law of evidence, then your rights are violated. If you don't get certain evidence from the prosecutor, your rights are violated. Um, what's a little bit different about these prejudice-based rights is that they actually don't give any clear categorical procedural command, whether evidentiary or uh, you know directed to a trial judge. Instead, they basically say, um, you know, the the procedure your your right is not violated when you don't get evidence from a prosecutor, when you don't have an effective lawyer, when you aren't allowed to present certain evidence unless the denial of that procedural protection causes prejudice to you in some way. And furthermore, these rights, um, at least in the, uh, uh, the set of rights that I'm dealing with in this article, they define prejudice in a very specific sense. Right? Prejudice is not a self-defining term. It could actually mean a whole lot of different things, um, some of which I might not have as much of a gripe with. Um, but the way that it's defined in these particular contexts is that a defendant is not prejudiced um, unless the denial of the procedural right or protection would affect the outcome of the proceeding. Um, you know, so if you're talking about a, um, the denial of a right in connection with a jury trial, it would be the, the jury's verdict. Um, but it could also be in a sentencing context, right? Did it affect the uh, bottom line, the sentence imposed by the judge, or in a plea bargaining context, uh, the decision that the defendant made um, to accept or decline a particular um, guilty plea. Um, 
And so I guess that that's kind of what separates uh, prejudice-based rights in the sense that I'm talking about from um, other ways that we might um, think about procedures as kind of categorical commands about um, how a proceeding ought to be structured. So in your paper, you primarily talk about the Brady right uh, of a criminal defendant to receive exculpatory evidence and the Strickland right to effective assistance of of counsel. I wonder if, if for listeners who might not be steeped in criminal procedure and in criminal justice issues, if you could talk a little bit about how each of those rights would play out in practice in a trial court in relation to whether or not those rights had been violated in a particular situation, like maybe like an example or, or, or something and, and, and how a court might go about analyzing it. Yeah, sure. So um, just to be clear, um, Brady and Strickland are not the only examples of this phenomenon, but you are absolutely right to note that uh, for the sake of concreteness, they are sort of the two case studies um, on which I kind of organize the analysis in the article. So um, Brady is a uh, Supreme Court case from 1963 holding that um, criminal defendants have a constitutional right to receive certain kinds of evidence uh, from the prosecutor, either before or during trial. Specifically, they have the right to receive uh, evidence that is favorable and material to the defense. And, you know, that could have gotten cashed out in all kinds of different ways, right? Like, you know, sort of, uh, you could even imagine um, a way of implementing that rule that might even verge on something like open file discovery, right? Just about anything is favorable, at least in like a minimal sense of favorable to conducting your investigation, getting ready for trial, knowing what's going on, preparing your defense. Um, but subsequent decisions took it in a different direction and said, actually, what we mean um, by materiality, right, when it says the prosecutor has to turn over favorable and material evidence, um, the Supreme Court said, well, what material means is evidence that has a reasonable probability of changing the outcome of the trial. Um, so basically mapping onto this prejudice concept that I was talking about. Um, and so as a result of that, um, prosecutors um, in a pretrial posture are um, able to keep a lot of information that is at least modestly exculpatory to the defense, right? Evidence that calls their own witnesses, the prosecution's witnesses, their credibility into question, right? Deals with informants, right? All kinds of things. Prosecutors will oftentimes keep it in their back pocket and say, Brady does not require me to turn it over because there's no reasonable probability that this evidence will affect the outcome, right? There's no reasonable probability that if I suppress it, the defendant will be prejudiced. Same thing with Strickland, which is the other right that you mentioned. So uh, Strickland versus Washington is the Supreme Court decision holding uh, that criminal defendants have a Sixth Amendment right to effective assistance of counsel, right? Sounds good. So, so far, so good. Um, but when they actually cashed out the legal test for what that means, they said that a criminal defendant, uh, a criminal defendant's right is only violated if first... Um, the defense counsel's uh, representation is uh, sort of falls below an objectively minimum level of reasonableness. And you might think, wow, that's already like a pretty sort of <laughs> prosecution friendly test. Like maybe we could just stop there. But the Supreme Court says, no, we're not going to stop there. We're also going to have a prejudice requirement, right? So that even if 
the defendant's lawyer was essentially asleep at the switch, um, sometimes literally, not just figuratively, by the way, um, we're also going to ask, did the defendant's, uh, uh, did defense counsel's uh, inadequacy, inadequate performance, have a reasonable probability of, the, of affecting the outcome of the proceeding? And if the answer is no, then because this is a prejudice-based right, the courts will say the defendant's rights were not even violated in the first place. I feel like a lot of law students, you know, former law clerks, and maybe law professors who aren't uh, criminal law professors, especially, might hear what you're talking about and think of it as a version of, to the extent they're familiar with criminal law, as a version of the harmless error doctrine applied on on appeal. How is it what you're talking about different from harmless error? Because you're primarily, as I take it, looking at what happens at trial, in trial courts, or, or pre-trial, right? How is that different from appellate review under the harmless error standard? And how should that make us think differently about the nature of the problem and how it should be treated? Great question. So this harmless error review is actually my entry point into this topic. Um, so, uh, you know, before I entered the academy, I was a public defender focusing on criminal appeals. Um, and what I ran into time and time again was um, how almost every time that I had a trial transcript, I could find all kinds of procedural mistakes that happened, but we were constantly screening for the next question, which is, did the procedural error that we found harm or prejudice the defendant? Because um, appellate courts very aggressively apply um, the, pra the uh, practice or the rule known as harmless error review, which says appellate courts almost always will just ignore um, procedural errors against a defendant and affirm their convictions or sentences, despite the error if the error was harmless. And harmlessness is measured in a kind of similar way to what I was describing earlier, right? In terms of did the error affect the outcome uh, of the of the of the trial level proceeding? Um, so that was kind, of, and so I have all kinds of problems <laughs> with the way that appellate courts do do harmless error review, and we can talk about that. I've written about that in separate work. Um, but uh, what I was interested in in this article was how these prejudice-based rights suffer from all of the same criticisms that you might lodge against appellate harmless error review, but then they multiply those problems by making the problems associated with trying to measure prejudice and, and the problems associated with reducing defendants' rights um, to an out, this outcome-centric um, uh, you know, uh, metric. Um, and it brings those outside of the appellate space and puts them into pre-trial decision-making and into trial decision-making, right? So, so with other kinds of rights that are not prejudice-based rights, um, a trial judge is not allowed to think about prejudice in deciding whether to deprive you of a procedural protection, right? They, they might still screw it up. They might get it wrong. And then the appellate court will apply that, you know, will apply harmless error review in figuring out whether you get any relief or not. But at least the trial judge is supposed to just try to do the right thing and not think about whether doing the wrong thing will uh, change the outcome of the proceeding. Um, but for, for rights like Brady, and ineffective assistance of counsel. Because prejudice is actually built into the structure of the procedural right itself, 
um, the Supreme Court is basically telling trial judges or prosecutors in the context of Brady, um, there's actually no, no problem with you thinking about uh, prejudice and basically saying, you know, a prosecutor, for example, I'm not going to turn over this evidence to the defendant, even though it hurts my case to a certain extent. Um, because in my opinion, my opinion as a prosecutor, I think it will not affect the outcome of the proceeding. Um, and I think that that leads to all kinds of problems over and above the problems that we might lay at the doorstep of appellate harmless error review. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a real epistemic issue here in a way, in a sense that like, you know, it's already kind of troubling that appellate courts in the context of harmless error review are second guessing <laughs> what would or wouldn't have affected the assessment of the jury at at trial. But at the trial court level, it's even tougher because at least the appellate court has the entire record before it. The trial court is making decisions in the moment as the case is still developing, sometimes even really early in the trial trial process. Um, I mean, I, I wonder if you could like maybe give like a concrete example just to sort of like illustrate exactly how that works and why you think it's so problematic. I mean, like what kind of specific decision might a trial court judge be confronted with in either a kind of Brady or Strickland context and sort of what would be the factors that would enter into the judge's calculus as to how to to determine the outcome of a particular objection. Yeah, so I, I couldn't agree more that there are really significant um, epistemic problems in trying to measure prejudice. Uh, there are, to, to be clear, there are significant epistemic problems in, at the appellate level with harmless error review. Um, but the point that I'm trying to make in this article is that those problems are um, seriously magnified um, in these pretrial or trial um, postures, partly because, as you say, um, you're trying to figure out what will affect the outcome of a trial or a sentencing hearing when you don't actually have the evidence yet, right? You don't have a complete record that would actually inform what is or is not likely um, to affect the outcome. Now, um, you know, when you um, kind of ended the question, you asked, um, how would a trial judge uh, go through this process? Like what, what kinds of factors would they be looking at when measuring prejudice? Um, and that's part of the question, but um, in some ways the, the problem goes deeper with Brady because it's not necessarily a trial judge, right? You're actually even inviting prosecutors or in some instances police officers because they're sort of co, uh, you know, uh, jointly responsible uh, with prosecutors for implementing the Brady rule. Um, but you're actually inviting a litigant um, in the case to make determinations about um you know, the, the strength of their opponent's evidence, whether their opponent is likely to win if they turn over certain kinds of evidence, right? And there's all kinds of problems with like motivated reasoning, um, which even for a prosecutor who's like trying to act in good faith and do the right thing, right? I mean, the reason they brought this prosecution is because they think that they have strong evidence. They think that they can prove guilt beyond reasonable doubt, and they are not going to be inclined to think, Oh, if I turn over, you know, this this uh, these three pieces of evidence that like slightly call into question the credibility of my star witness, or maybe not so slightly call into question the credibility of my star witness, um, the defendant is going to be acquitted, right? Instead, there's going to be confirmation bias and other kinds of things that are going to drive 
um, their decision making and incline them to think, you know what? No, like the, the jury's going to agree with me because I'm right and I've got all this really amazing evidence. Um, but even when you um, put prosecutors to the to the side, um, I think that um, trial judges, right, when they don't even have a complete record to go on, they're going to tr- basically just muddle through and, uh, you know, try to say, well, I've heard from the prosecutor. They've told me, right, in hearsay and in sort of proffers, right, not a- actual evidence or witnesses about, like, all the great evidence that they have against the defendant and why this is such a slam dunk case such slam dunk case that nothing could ever possibly like result in a verdict other than guilty, right? So there's all kinds of problems with the presumption of innocence and how it kind of flips into a presumption of guilt. Um, but fundamentally, the exercise that the judge or the prosecutor or whomever is trying to do is they're trying to sort of take out a crystal ball and uh, look into the future and try to figure out, um, you know, will the uh, eventual disposition of this proceeding um, be different with or without this evidence, with or without better defense counsel, right, if you're talking about ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, and if they don't have a clear sense that there will be a difference, then they will deny uh, that the defendant has uh, a, a constitutional right implicated. Um, and, uh, and and that can lead to self-fulfilling prophecies, right, If the uh, you know, in the sense that um, if the judge thinks that it's a foregone conclusion that the prosecution is going to win um, and therefore, you know, doesn't intervene to prevent ineffective assistance of counsel, well, yeah, that's probably going to lead to a guilty verdict because now the defendant no longer has a good lawyer beside him uh, going into the proceeding. Well, so Justin, I mean, does the existing rule do anything to protect defendants in these contexts or is it really kind of just like an empty promise? You know, I, I kind of lean toward the empty uh, promise side side of this answer. It, it, it's not that they do nothing, um, partly because there are um, different ways of interpreting uh, the relevant Supreme Court precedents. Um, different jurisdictions take different approaches, right? So up until this point, I have um, sort of described Brady and Strickland as prejudice-based rights and said, you know, that this prejudice inquiry, it's not just a harmless error analysis for appellate courts. It's also something being done, you know, that that the Supreme Court has said trial judges and prosecutors should think about that. Um, there are some jurisdictions that, have, that just read those decisions differently, right? Um, and they say, actually, that, that, that would be crazy. Right. This sounds an awful lot like harmless error review. And that's something that only appellate judges or or habeas courts. uh, But that's a different question um, should be thinking about. That's not something that we traditionally think about in a pretrial or trial posture. And um, so in this jurisdiction, we're going to say that that's impermissible. Right. In those postures. And I think that when you have jurisdictions or courts in certain parts of the country that will say things like that, um, then you actually can, um, you know, put some teeth into the Brady right or put some teeth into um, ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, but again, that, that, that's not really a defense of prejudice-based rights, right? That, that's more of an argument that Brady or Strickland are not super problematic to the extent that courts interpret them as not being prejudice-based rights in the first place. Um, I guess that the, the other thing that I would say before I, uh, you know, hand it back to you is, um, Thankfully, Brady, Strickland, and you know some of the other prejudice-based rights I talk about, um, and I'm talking about constitutional rights in this in this piece, 
thankfully they are not the only game in town, right? They're not the only way that you can regulate criminal procedure. And so, for example, many jurisdictions um, have far more robust discovery rules in criminal cases than the sort of constitutional minimum prescribed by Brady. And interestingly, some of the, um, some some jurisdictions have even, through non-constitutional rules, um, basically reenacted the Brady rule, but without this prejudice or materiality component. And so they're basically, and, and I think that's a great intervention. It basically is telling prosecutors everything in your files that even gives you the slightest pause, right? An inconsistency in your witness, a possible motive to lie, like an informant deal, right? You have to hand it over without asking, would this lead to an acquittal, right? And, and you can do those things with non-constitutional rules, even if the constitutional rules are broken. To the extent we want to disaggregate what trial courts, et cetera, are doing in the context of these kinds of rights from what appellate courts are doing. I mean, you make a couple proposals for how we ought to think about these kinds of currently prejudice-based rights differently at that level and why we should do it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of like what you think should change in order to really properly vindicate these rights and better ensure that the kind of epistemic problem that you've identified is is mitigated? Sure. So um, there are two main proposals uh, that I make in the piece. Um, and I guess at a high level summary, uh, as, as a high level summary, I, I would say that the first proposal is to uh, reclassify these prejudice doctrines, the, these outcome centric prejudice doctrines as um, questions of remedy analogous to harmless error review, right? Basically saying these are appellate issues. Don't fool around with them um, in the trial at the trial court level. And so basically you're taking it out of the definition of the right. So we no longer have a prejudice-based right and you're reclassifying it. You're saying, think about prejudice at the remedy stage and figuring out whether an appellate court reverses, but not prior to that point, right? So that's proposal number one. Um, and then proposal number two is um, a little bit more adventurous uh, and, and builds on something that I've argued for uh, in prior work, which is even once we um, sort of limit the impact of prejudice analysis to the appellate stage, get it out of the pretrial picture, get it out of the hands of prosecutors and trial judges. So it's just appellate judges and habeas courts primarily. We're going to think about it. Maybe we can also just define prejudice in a more expansive um, richly textured way so that it's not just about this outcome centric idea, right? Um, which basically reflects this notion that procedural rights don't matter unless they affect the outcome, right? We actually purport in criminal procedure to, to, to protect defendants' rights for, for all kinds of other reasons, aside from right, the reliability or protecting innocent people, protecting the outcome. We also care about giving people voice. We care about, or at least purport to, right, care about um, keeping discrimination um, out of the adjudicative process. We at least purport to care about um, you know, the right to a public trial and sort of having an open, transparent adjudicative process, which is an important value in a democratic society. And um, and so I guess the, the second part of my proposal is, you know, the, what I call it in the piece is um, shifting toward a contextual definition of prejudice or a contextual type of harmless error review. And, and the idea is even once we're doing appellate or habeas harmless error review, 
the question before the court shouldn't just be, um, you know, did the procedural error at the trial affect the outcome? And if it didn't affect the outcome, it's harmless and we don't care anymore. Um, because we have to look at what other values might have been violated, what other harms um, might have occurred from the deprivation of a defendant's rights. Were there harms to the defendant's autonomy? Were there harms to anti-discrimination goals? Were there harms to transparency-related goals? And so on. And so you might get a reversal because of those harms, even if there was not an effect on the outcome. So just to clarify, I mean, the shift that you're proposing and describing in your paper, how do you think that that would affect the incentives and actions potentially of prosecutors and trial judges kind of in the moment? Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot to unpack in that question. I, I think that one of um, the biggest um, advantages of especially the first part of the proposal, the proposal that says, like, even if we're going to do prejudice, do it at the remedial stage, do it in the appellate stage, but get it out of the trial process, is that it at least, even if it doesn't change the basic incentives of, like, for example, prosecutors, right, in the Brady context, um, it at least clarifies what it means to respect a defendant's rights so that if a prosecutor is actually trying to do the right thing, right, the law is now clear about what the right thing means, right? It, it, the law is now clear that what, you know, doing the right thing means not trying to take out your crystal ball and sort of suppress evidence just because you think it might not affect the outcome, right? And so I think that for prosecutors who are acting in good faith, even if it doesn't change their incentives, um, it changes the law, right? That they are at least um, hopefully trying to abide by. Um, but I think that where you really get some some uh, changes in incentives is when you realize that trial judges, right? Uh, taking prejudice out of the definition of the right, it actually changes the law that trial judges are applying, right? And so in the Brady space, for example, they would now be able under my proposal to um, exert greater levels of supervision, over prosecutors. They would you know, be more able to take a look at what's in a prosecutor's files and say, um, hey, you know, even though you know, maybe you didn't think that you needed to turn uh, over this deal that you have with an informant or the inconsistencies, uh, in inconsistent prior statements of your key witness, um, you know, I disagree with that. I think it's like plainly at least favorable, even if it wouldn't change the outcome of the case. And so it needs to get turned over to the defense. And if you're not going to turn it over, then there, there are going to be sanctions or there are going to be discovery orders, right? Orders to compel, um, things like that. Um, and so I think that it's um, primarily through the empowerment of trial judges um, that you would get potential changes in the incentives of prosecutors in this space. <laughs> Now, I am from Ethiopia, 
Try hard, you rude boys, for shooting black people. In my court, on the beat top, as I'm Bex, and I am the rude boy today. Who got Hicks? Yes, sir. Rude boy, Adolphus Jakes? Yes, sir. Rude boy, Emmanuel Zachariah Zaki Palm? Present. George Robin Flea? Present. Hmm. Adolphus James? Yes, sir. I see where you have been charged. Tent shooting with intent. Five murder charge, six grab and flee charge. What you are not? Oh, shop! Guilty or not guilty? Not guilty, sir. I don't care what they say, take 400 here, stand down. Emmanuel Zachariah Zakipam? Yes, sir. You've been charged, 15 charge of shooting intent, 15 murder charge. And I heard that you was the one. Down there in Sutton Street, who tell the judge, rude boys don't care. Well, this is King Street, and my name is Judge Dredd, and I don't care. Now take 400 years. Oh, shut what they trying to do, shoot me too? No, you are but I didn't shoot you, Well, quiet. 400 more years for you. Judge, grab and flee. Yes, sir. Stop your crying. Good boys don't cry. That's what I hear. I didn't read you no I don't hear. Hush up. This is my court. You're charged for robbing school children. Robbery aggravation. Good man, I'll take my sentence see you, my son. You shoot the man, you know. I just want to go out to the judge. Come and try, you know, son. I'll take my sentence you, know, sir. Adolphus James? Yes, sir. You rob school children. You boom the people's house. You shot black people. But you and I don't give you. Hush up. Just for talking, I now charge you for contempt. And that is a separate hundred years. I hereby sentence you to 400 years. I said, hush up, hush up. You're sentenced to 400 years and 500 lashes. I am going to set an example. I, good boys, don't cry, don't cry. When I was in Africa, I hear you were talking. Court adjourned, take him away. 